Hello and welcome to Science to the T. I'm your host, Sky Smith, and today we have a very special episode with my close friend, Deidre Odell, who is a PhD student in the neuroscience department at West Virginia University. And she's here to talk about her really cool research. So welcome. Hello, science enthusiasts and tea drinkers. <laughs> so first, I guess we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the tea that we're drinking since that's kind of my, my go-to. I'm just having a cup of general green tea. It's got roasted rice in it, which is apparently a really popular Japanese thing. I like it, but it's kind of weird. <laughs> Since it's evening time here, I'm just doing a peppermint tea to kind of enjoy a nice, relaxing, cold Friday evening. Yeah, I miss the cold weather. It's like really warm here. <laughs> So I wanted to first start off with a little bit of history of your project. When you first started, I know that you didn't immediately grab onto this project. Yeah, it was it was more of whenever I joined the current laboratory that I'm working in, there was another project that my mentor kind of was working on at the time. And while I did maybe about a year and a half to two years worth of work on that project, I, my heart really wasn't in it. And I started kind of digging in to the work that went into the paper that we'll be discussing around the same time. So whenever that initial project kind of fizzled out, I was actually quite happy to be like, hey, uh, <laughs> I've been looking into this and I think this is really interesting and worthwhile and a cool direction for our lab to explore because no one was really looking at our areas of interest at the time. So yeah, it's exciting and I think it's important to share with people that one project isn't always and forever. And like with Deidre, she found a really awesome project that resulted in this really cool paper. And she's the first person to publish something like this. So it's, it's really awesome to see. And it's, I think, important for us to understand that, you know, science is very fluid and you go where the data goes. Sexy science, as they like to call it. <laughs> uh, true. <laughs> cringy term, but technically appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely uh, cringy. <laughs> I, call, I call it fun science. I don't know. Everything's fun to me. So Deja, now that we know where your project came from, let's learn a little bit more about, you know, the background and the history behind it. So the biggest kind of component of the paper and work that I do is looking at something called the perineuronal net. And in neuroscience, a lot of gravitas and stardom is given to the neurons, but they're not the only player in the central nervous system or the peripheral nervous system. And what I'm looking into is a specialized type of extracellular matrix and how this substance kind of enwrap different neurons throughout the central nervous system, how it can alter how they speak to one another. So how they talk to other different neurons, how they function in a circuit, and then how this could in turn lead to different disease states or alter how an animal or even a person could behave. So you're talking about perineuronal nets, and yes. you said that they are extracellular matrix. How would you describe the extracellular matrix to someone that is not in our field? So in this case, they're kind of 
loose and dense types. And what I'm looking into is a dense type. So if you kind of picture a neuron as something that may be kind of jelly-like, imagine the tight, dense perineuronal net as potentially like a bunch of chicken wire wrapped around these cells. <laughs> because it's not entirely solid. Like there have been some cool physics paper looking at it as like a semi-solid, but I'm not a physicist. <laughs> and uh one thing to keep in mind is that it's not contiguous. There are gaps and holes in it. And this could be a potential site of memory storage where other interesting things are going to be happening. So that's how I would describe this type of extracellular matrix, something that's going to be tightly around these cells, around their bodies, and where neurons are going to be receiving information or the dendrites as well. That's really cool. So you're saying essentially that neurons have this like chicken wire around them that's like protecting them, but also helping them learn? It's protecting them so that they can withstand the changes in the uh, extracellular environment, as well as store memories, as well as inhibit new growth. It's really cool because it's involved in many different types of processes, but my main focus is potentially how it could be playing a role in learning and memory. That's so awesome. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so since you're studying learning and memory, you know, most people would think you're looking directly at like the hippocampus or, you know, that area, but I've noticed a lot of your work has not been focused there and, and where have you focused in the brain and why and what neurons are you looking at? The hippocampus is definitely a very hot area of studying the encoding and decoding of learning and memory, but there are a couple other different locations throughout the brain that this process also occurs. And I'm looking at a type of learning in the cerebellum. And this is a type of system that is going to be very important in timing responses and learning information in that way. The neurons that I study in the cerebellum are large and excitatory neurons where they're going to be saying, go, go, versus the interneurons, which are kind of more of a pumping the brake. Mm, it's a good description of those. <laughs> So what would happen if the perineuronal net got messed up? So there are a couple different things because the perineuronal net is not just made up of one item. It's made mm -hmm. up of several different pieces. So any single one of those could be potentially not made correctly. There potentially couldn't be enough of it. Mm -hmm. And that could then affect the way that this circuit can function together. These neurons may not wire correctly. They may not signal correctly to other ones. And then that could in turn lead to disease or even just something as mundane as a difference in behavior. A couple of very interesting diseases that have been implicated in being related to a faulty perineuronal net are things like autism, spectrum mm -hmm. disorders, schizophrenia. It's been studied in concert with drug research, so like addiction, mm -hmm. those types of memories, PTSD, Alzheimer's disease, so depending on which component of the perineuronal net is abnormal, you could potentially be leading to any one of those. So it's obvious that 
these things are really important, yet it's a pretty small field. Right. And I would say it's a very exciting part of the neuroscience field because it's still kind of growing. If we were at the beach, the wave of perineuronal net research would still kind of be reaching <laughs> its full crest. And it kind of has to do with, you know, the history of neuroscience and why it was relatively understudied until, you know, maybe the past decade and a half or so where a lot of this research has just exploded. So it's kind of been cool to be involved in that. Yeah, you're like watching your work be used for the betterment of science. It's so cool. So, you know, the majority of researchers can't use humans as their model, as their subject. So I wanted to talk to you about what animal model you used and why you chose those animals as opposed to using worms or using fish or something like that. Our lab, the behavior we do, like I said, is cerebellar dependent. So we do a test called eye blink conditioning. And this isn't something that's so different than our buddy Pavlov with his drooling dog and bell, <laughs> except we train our animals and you can do this in people too, but we chose to do animals to train them to associate a aversive stimulus to the eye, either an air puff or a shock with a tone and eventually they will blink to that tone. I chose <laughs> to do the rat. We had the option of potentially doing rats or mice, but I prefer the rat as an animal because I think they learn a little bit faster and mm. their startle response is not as large as a mouse, meaning that whenever you play a loud tone to a mouse, a lot of times they can jump a little bit more than potentially a rat would. <laughs> In my experience, there are lots of people who do use mice though. Another reason we wanted to use uh, our system is we wanted our animals to be able to kind of walk around and move, whereas some people will kind of force them to be static. Mm -hmm. And one thing I also wanted to do that no one else had done in the literature is I wanted to make sure I included both male and female animals. There are lots of diseases that impact both sexes, and I think it's very important whenever looking at a model of anything to include both if you can. That's smart. I think that a lot of people only stick with one sex and we have learned that female and male, even just behavior is very different in animals and in humans. Right, exactly. <laughs> so now that we've had a brief introduction of Deidre, who she is and her project and why it's super important, let's move on into her paper. And her paper was published in December of 2020 in the peer-reviewed journal, Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. And the title of her paper is like really awesome. <laughs> it is Disruption of Rat Deep Cerebellar Perineuronal Net Alters Eye Blink Conditioning and Neuronal Electrophysiology. But don't let that intimidate you because Deidre is an expert at breaking things down and making it really palatable for everyone. So with that, I will let you talk to us about your paper. First of all, I guess I'll kind of break down exactly what that title means, disruption. So we're going to manipulate, digest, change something. In the rat deep cerebellum, we're going to alter that perineuronal net. And because we've disrupted that perineuronal net, we see that these animals have a difference in the way they undergo eye blink conditioning 
and also the electrical property of the neurons in the deep cerebellum itself. That's so cool. So one of the very first things I wanted to look at is how does the perineuronal net in the deep cerebellum change throughout a rat's lifespan? And I found that when an animal is rather young, they really don't have a lot of perineuronal net. However, by the time they are being removed from their mother, they do start to have a perineuronal net. And this persists throughout the rest of their lifetime. This is interesting because our lab and other labs who study rat eye blink conditioning find that animals that we saw had very little perineuronal net really can't learn or retain that information because it's not just one thing to learn something. You have to keep it in your brain and remember it. That was kind of one of the very first exciting things we found is that this changes throughout the early part of our lifespan. And other researchers have found corroborating information in people too, which I think is kind of cool. But it's not just enough to look at how this is changing throughout an animal's lifespan. We do want to look at younger animals, but we kind of wanted to first start at looking at how disrupting the perineuronal net in the adult animal would affect its ability to learn and retain eye blink conditioning. And one thing to keep in mind in eye blink conditioning, it's not just how often you're going to be blinking to that tone. We can ask other questions about that blink. How fast after that tone is the animal blinking? How big is that eye blink they're having? And there are people in the field who use these different parameters to gauge the strength of these animals' ability to learn. So initially I was feeling a little discouraged. Our animal groups were learning this information at the same rate. The people who did this research in the mice did not see this. And when I started looking more into the other parameters, though, I started seeing really drastic differences in the size of their eye blink. The animals who had a disrupted perineuronal net had these teeny tiny little eye blinks in comparison to the other animals who were not having a disrupted perineuronal net, the control group. And this is really interesting because it suggests, although they could learn, was not as well stabilized with this disrupted perineuronal net, suggesting that they can learn just great, but actually retaining that information well into the future may not be something that could go out. So you're saying that the rats that had a disrupted perineuronal net, while they were able to learn the task, they couldn't remember it the next day. They could remember it the next day, they seem to forget that information a little bit faster. Okay. So they can remember, but they don't remember it as well. And if we were able to take the research out further and further, we could eventually see those differences. But there's only so much time for each project. <laughs> so that's like my memory of neuroanatomy versus your memory of neuroanatomy. My perineuronal nets were all wonky during that time. <laughs> So I didn't hold on to any of that information, whereas you're, you've got that on lockdown for life. <laughs> reviewed it way too many times for it ever to go away now. <laughs> got those very dense chicken wires around your neuron. 
not too dense though that's like another really cool thing is like so many other things in biology perineuronal nets are something that exists in this happy equilibrium when you disrupt it too much you see like you see with very young animals or other studies where they obliterated the perineuronal net you can't learn anything but if you're so densely wrapped you can't wire into the network very well, or you can't receive connections from other neurons. And then you're basically gagged when everybody else is at the party chatting to one another and you can't really join in. <laughs> so you see these, these big changes, but what about, what about the neurons? What's going on with them? So interestingly enough, these neurons are very healthy. They're membrane potential or the potential of their membrane that allows them to kind of exist at this happy equilibrium isn't any different between the animals or the brain slices that had a intact or a disrupted perineuronal net. But we did see, again, some differences when it came to things like the timing between action potentials, which is what a neuron will use to send a signal down its axon and communicate to another cell. So we found that there was a difference in the timing between these. We also noticed that these neurons tended to have an increased after hyperpolarization, which means that the cell is unlikely to fire again for a short amount of time and they needed more voltage for them to actually fire another action potential, among several other changes. But uh, I think those are some of our big exciting ones, seeing the differences there. So you, you're seeing that these animals are behaving differently, and their neurons, while they're healthy, are still very different compared to the controls. But as you said a little bit earlier, there were sex differences. Could you elaborate a little bit on that between the males and the females and what they did? We were able to see that the animals who had the disrupted perineuronal nets lost their sex differences on behavior. But it was really interesting to me that for some reason, without their perineuronal net, the male animals behaved more like a female animal. And I haven't really come across any big sex differences for the cerebellum in general, which I thought was also kind of interesting compared to other brain regions, which are kind of known for driving you know, sexual behavior and things like that. So it was kind of interesting, but we see in the animals with an intact perineuronal net, the sex differences persist, but in those without the perineuronal net, we see that the sex differences are ameliorated. And we really didn't think that we would see anything when we did this. I kind of just did it in good faith because I think you should include both. And I guess this is another reason why, because you may find some significant differences that you weren't really looking for. Just goes to show, do good science and you can get good results. <laughs> so with the control group, you're saying that there were sex differences. Were the males performing better, or the females performing better, or, you know, holding on to that memory longer? It looked like our female animals were 
holding onto that memory slightly tighter than our male animals. They seem to be retaining that information at a significant level on the one parameter that we were looking at. <laughs> but it's still really cool research because you took this idea and you not only convinced your mentor that it was good, you have... <laughs> I'm going to use the P word. You proved that it was good. It was, it's a great project. It's a great paper. And I think that the scientific field is really going to benefit from it. It's so cool. I hope this could encourage other people to consider, including, you know, look at different ages, look at the different sexes. The body is not a monolith. It changes and there are differences. And I think those are worthwhile things to investigate. We want to get a good picture of things. I think so too. And I think the scientific field in general needs to understand this. You can't just look at one thing. You have to look at everything and that's going to take time and that's a process. And I think that it's important for everyone to understand that, that you don't just, you know, say, I got this one little piece and it's done. And so to wrap everything up, what's one sentence that you think would summarize your paper and really get to the general population? The perineuronal net is an important part of many systems of learning and memory. Changing it can have profound effects or more subtle ones. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> so there you have it. Perineuronal nets are super important for learning and memory. And if you would like to learn more about Deidre's research or ask her any sort of questions about her work, feel free to tweet at her. At Siren of Science. <laughs> Thank you, Deidre, for taking the time to go through this podcast. Thank you for having me. It was really fun to talk science with you. I think this is really exciting, and I hope to do more podcasts like this. Stay tuned for more information. Yay! Thank you for listening to Science to the T. Please rate and comment to help make this the best learning experience possible. You can also submit topic requests to sciencetothet at gmail.com. I would love to know what you want to hear about. Tune in next week for another terrific episode as we explore just how food waste can be used to clean our water.